Uh, so Advent, we're turning to Advent, um, to our message today. I love Advent, which is the four weeks that come before Christmas. If Christmas is a time where we remember Jesus and that he was born into this world, the four weeks of Advent are a time where we remember why we need him. Uh, the Christian church has sort of, for many centuries, developed this practice of remembering why we need him. Advent is a time where our music gets a little more somber, where our, uh, we bring out colors and, and smells and sounds and traditions that help us remember that Jesus came in order to face the darkness of this world. He, he came to face it head on and became the light which uh, could not be extinguished by the darkness. And so in this four weeks, we remember that we live in dark times still. And it's our job and our, our, uh, th there's the great possibility for us to face the darkness too. We can, we can uh, face it with the, the courage that Jesus is with us, that God has not forsaken us, and uh, that with him until he comes back once again as we wait for, uh, the darkness will not consume us. So that's Advent. That's the season that we're in. And uh, it helps us to turn away really from all that's fake in this world. There's so much fakeness, isn't there, out there. We, we find it so much in this season, uh, the consumer season of Christmas. So much that's not real. And we get our eyes transfixed on it and obsessed with it. And Advent helps us to turn away and remind us what is real once again. And remind us that Jesus, as he came, was not just any old person, but a king, a priest, and God himself. And so before, before when I was giving a bit of an introduction, I mentioned that Grassroots is a church of people who are trying to learn to love like Jesus loved. And so this year in particular at Grassroots, we've been focusing on the themes of love in the, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And so we've been uh, traveling already for many months on this theme that we'll continue with. And if you've missed any of the sermons, you're interested in where, where we've been with the themes of love. We've talked about Jesus' own love, his, his teachings on love, the vision of love that he gave to us. And then we moved into a season in October, early November, thinking about how does this love actually matter in our practical everyday relationships. So if you missed any of those, you're interested, they're all online on the podcast, but I'll catch you up anyway if you missed it, no problem. Uh, but here we enter into the season of Advent, asking ourselves, what does love have to do with Advent and Christmas? Well, really everything, right? I mean, Advent is the time where we realize that our hopes can hold on because of a pure love that, that, that God has for us. And Christmas is the time where God himself, love himself, decided to become a human and walk this journey with us in this way. And so uh, as we bring together the themes of expectation and Christmas and uh, uh, the nativity, what I think what happens when you, when you bring those together with the themes of love is you get this idea that human beings at our very core are the recipients of love. And here's, here's a couple of points that I'm going to unpack a little bit over the next couple of weeks we cannot love this world like we should, like we want to, until we learn to receive God's love. Love has a very active element to it, right? We, we go out, love, love is not an emotion, love is not something that we feel and we are, are swayed by our feelings, but love is ultimately uh, an action that comes out into the world and gives selflessly so that we begin rejoicing in the fact that other people have life because of the sacrifices we've made. That's, that's the true love that we've been talking about. But we cannot learn to give it 
at all. We can't learn to give it until we learn to receive it. Because we know all sorts of forms of other kind of love that get in the way. And we've got to be able to receive the love of God. When I was in university, I was like a Jesus freak. Like I was on fire for God. It was a very young kind of faith, a very pure kind of faith. But I, I was... Um, you know, you walk through campus at uh, college or university and you have those moments where classes are getting out and uh, all the students are transferring from one class to another. So you have this place, oftentimes in universities, called the quad or whatever you might call it. It's somewhere out in the middle and all this traffic comes back and forth. Maybe it's lunchtime, so people are heading to lunch or uh, maybe it's a, another class time is starting. So during this time, I would often be walking with my Bible in tow, and uh, I would just get this really strong, overwhelming urge to kneel down and pray. And so in the middle of this secular place with hundreds of students walking out, I'd step aside, I'd kneel down on the, the muddy grass, and I would just pray. And I'm like... I'm really glad that I had that experience, and I probably wouldn't be doing that today. Uh, I, I wouldn't have enough courage to do that today, probably, because I've grown up and got a little harder in my, in my faith, in my life. Uh, I've, I've been bruised a little more for that kind of expression of faith. Um, but that's what I did for, for four years. I would go, and I would just listen to the Spirit's leading, and I would sit down and pray. I'd pray for the people walking by. I'd pray for, um, I'd pray for my professors. I'd pray for fellow students and just whatever came. And I would try to follow these inklings, these movements of the Spirit. And I remember one time I was, uh, had this inkling to sit down, uh, to kneel down and pray, and I stepped aside, and I was like, oh, I don't really want to do that today. Like, what do you want from me, God? You know, like, this is too much. Why are you asking me to be... Uh, uh, courageous like this. So I knelt down and I got quiet and I, all I heard was, no problem, Keith. I just wanted to tell you I love you. And I got up and went on. Now, I haven't had those kind of experiences much lately uh, since I've grown up. And as I mentioned, what happens is, is we, we, we grow up, don't we? we? We grow up in a world that's harsh. We grow up in a world that bruises us and beats us in ways that, um, that take us and, and start making us a bit of a shame sometimes of, of the love, which is, which is God. And uh, we begin questioning, we begin wondering, does he have a heart really? Is he really, is he really? Does he really have a father's heart like that? And all these questions begin to, to shape the way that we do or do not want to receive the love of God. So we cannot love this world until we learn to receive it. And the second point kind of follows that receiving the love of God is not inevitable. That's a hard one for us to hear, but it's true. The love of God is always around us, always with us. He's always trying to communicate his love to us. But our hearts are sometimes so calloused by this world that uh, it's not inevitable. And we run past the expressions of God love, God's love for us. We have a hard time hearing it because of all the, the kind of the, um, what's the word, uh, calcifications? That's not the word. You know the things that you get on your hands when you start to... Calluses, thank you. The calluses. Uh, you get the calluses on our heart and we have a hard time and it's not inevitable. And the love of God really is shed abroad to us. It's, it's communicated to us oftentimes like a baby born in a backwater in a place where no one's really paying attention. Uh, and our lives are so geared up around our, our achievements and our successes that we miss it. We miss the love of God as he's trying to communicate it to us. Uh, so we do, we do not find the love in this world of God to be self-evident. Uh, but here's, here's the reason why, I think. Part of the reason why. 
I think is because so many of us have very few experiences in our life of being someone's treasure, being treasured. I mean, we grow up and our parents do the best they can with us and we have our relationships and we do the best we can in them. But how many people really feel that you've been treasured lately by someone? <laughs> okay, we've got one person. <laughs> That's great. It's two people, three people. Okay, so we have some experiences of being treasured, but, it's, but they're, they're few and far between, I think. To be the apple of someone's eye. You know, our kids probably are wondering, like, what's so captivating about these little handheld devices, right, in our hands? We go through our days, and, and my, my, my one-year-old son, it's like I make his day when I hand over the, the smartphone. He's so excited. Like, this is what dad's been paying attention to. There must be something great in it. You know, and he gets it, and then he just, all he does is just turn it like this. You know, it's like he has no idea what it's for, uh, but he knows that I, I, my, all of my attention's at it. And so, you know, we, many of us grew up before the, the iPhone generation, but uh, our parents had their own things they were captivated by. And we really don't oftentimes know what it feels like to be treasured. Uh, to be attentively seen and provided for. And we've forgotten this altogether, I think. Uh, and then it comes to the love of God. The love of God is not a weak love. He's just, it's a strong love. And so I think sometimes when the powerful love of God comes upon us, sometimes we feel threatened by it, I think. It raises our hairs. There's a powerful love coming my way. What do I do with it? All I know about power is that it's here to threaten me. And so our, when our hearts are not prepared... And then here we are getting into Advent. When our hearts are not prepared to receive the love of God, what happens is his love comes upon us and then we put our fists up. We think, what is this? I don't understand this. I don't know this. Uh, I'm, I, it's been a long time since I've been treasured. What is this? And we get our fists in the air. Uh, and then rather coming face to face with the God who is trying to show his love to us in many experiences and situations, I think sometimes we end up covering ourselves. No, that's, I don't really want that. And the, the story of the people of God throughout the Bible is a story of a people who aren't quite sure that they're ready or wanting the love of God. So rather than being vulnerable and open and being ready to be ravished by the most amazing love in the universe, oftentimes our fists go up. So in the next few weeks on the run-up to Christmas here, we're talking about preparing ourselves. What does it feel like to prepare ourselves? Because we need to prepare ourselves for this love if we're going to receive it. Uh, and uh, I think one of the best places to begin is in John. So we begin with the Gospel of John. It's one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It talks about uh, Jesus, who he, what he is, what he's about. One of the four biographies that we have left over from his followers who knew him and walked with him. And this is the beginning of the book, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So here we are. We're talking about jumping in straight from in this, in this biography about Jesus in the beginning. And when John says in the beginning, that's what he means. He means in the beginning, like go all the way back to Genesis 1, into creation. Uh, this is a nativity story. This is going to be the, the word, uh, if for those of you who know John 1, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is our fourth 
uh, or the third nativity story in the Gospels. Mark doesn't have a nativity. Matthew, Luke, and John have a nativity. But this is a different kind of nativity. This isn't uh, shepherds and angels and magi. And uh, there's nothing about the manger in this, in this perspective. There's nothing about Bethlehem. Uh, John wants us to start somewhere else. He probably knows the other Gospels. He's like, you already got those stories. Let me try, try to tell this story from a different perspective. And he's wanting to tell this nativity story from the beginning, from a grand perspective. From the very creation of time was the Word. And the Word, and, and, uh, for those of you who haven't read the whole Gospel, the Word, the, uh, this idea of logos, the Word is Jesus. And, and by calling Jesus the Word, what's happening is... Um, um, that John is telling us that Jesus is the very mind of God. Jesus has the mind of God, and he's so closely attuned to the mind of God that whatever Jesus says, whatever he does, is going to be the very clearest thing that we have to see who God is and what God is about. And this word was with God in the beginning, making all things. Um, so they're linked up. Jesus and God, they're unified. When they speak words, they speak together. Uh, and this word, as we see, is going to become flesh. And there's nothing that we know, nothing that we experience in this life that hasn't been already thought about in the mind of the word from this Jesus. And the second thing I think that we see, not only is this a birth narrative, but the second thing we see is this whole story is going to be about love. If you read on in the Gospel of John, you, if, even if you don't read the Bible, you may know God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Right? That, that's a, a sort of a common phrase. That comes from John chapter 3. So we know that this is, this is, the whole book's going to be about God's love for the world, about Jesus' love for God and the love that comes from the followers of, of God. Um, and so as we think about not just this being a nativity, uh, we think about this being a story of love. And I, I love this quote here um, from, from the, um, it's the next verse on. Uh, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. So here's, here's the interesting point here, if we're not paying attention. In this word, in this Co-creator with God in the very beginning was life and light. What does that mean? What does it mean that the life of humankind was in this person? You've heard someone say they have life in their, uh, light in their eyes or breath in their nostrils. What John is telling us here, what he's, he's trying to get us to awaken to, is the fact that it's this person, this word and God together, who decided to give us life. These creators thought of us before the beginning of time. They thought up this whole amazing world and decided to give it birth. This is a birth story. Uh, life is at the very center, and although it does not feel like it all the time, this life is an amazing gift. We're alive because of him. And the thing that we don't like about this, here's the thing we don't like, is the fact that that makes us always in our identity, receivers. We are always on the receiving end from this God. We are, we are ultimately in our deepest set of identities, 
we are receivers. And we don't like that, do we? We like to be strong. We like to be in control. We don't like to be the ones who are weak and in need. But at the very core, that's who we are. That's our identity. And that doesn't make us weak. That doesn't make us foolish. That doesn't make us small. Sometimes we think of God thinking of us that way. Okay, so here's these little puny people who I made. They're like my little pawns in the chess game. We, we, we can tend to think like that because of the love we know in this world. It's not like that. It's different. It's, we, are, we are strong. We are powerful. We are, we are wise. We are good. He made us that way. But compared to him, in relationship to him, we're always the weaker one of the two and the much weaker of the two. Uh, and so John is trying to tell us from the beginning that not, we, didn't, we didn't just get born. We weren't just made and created because of this word and this God. But our very breath, our ongoing life, our ongoing light, if there's any light in the world, it's because of him. That's our identity. We're recipients of the love, the life, and the light of God. And receiving the love of God, learning to be full recipients of this love, is not just about understanding who he is up here. As, as if our whole job as Christians is to figure out, okay, if, if I just think hard enough that God loves me, if I can just tell you over and over again, God loves you, it's going to happen. You're going to feel it. You're going to know it. It doesn't work like that, does it? Because if, if I get up here and say, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves, God loves you, does that get anywhere towards your heart? No, you're like, but Keith, you're like, let's sit down for a coffee and let me tell you what my life has been like, and then you can tell me God loves me. You see how this works. Uh, the learning to receive the love of God isn't intellectual only. Um, it is about letting him touch us and figuring out what it means to let God touch us. Uh, but we do, have to, we do have to understand his love for us at a certain level, before we let him touch us, right? So I, I like this quote. Here's the quote I was thinking of uh, from a book I've been reading recently called Enjoying God, if you're interested. I forget the author. It's called Enjoying God. You may not realize it, but the Father is ravished by you. You make him smile. You make him laugh. You make him leap for joy. The blemishes, the scars, and the extra pounds that may weigh on your heart. Um, they, they may weigh on your heart, but they do not weigh on his. God loves your freckles. That's a, a cool way to say that, huh? But that's the kind of, these are the kind of sentiments, these are the kind of ideas that have a hard time sitting and dwelling with us. We have a hard time remembering because there's so many ways that the world tells us to be successful or beautiful or whatnot. And we forget that those are not in the heart of God. He treasures us pours himself into us. That's the love of God. Now, if you think that we're just making up kind ideas here, here are some scriptures to back this up. Uh, Zephaniah, an Old Testament prophet that was prophesying before Jesus came, he says, the Lord your God Israel is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. This isn't mushy love, is it, in this verse? Like, he's not just blurry-eyed, and uh, he, he, he loves us because he just, he's infatuated with us. No, this is a strong love. He's a mighty warrior, and we can be kind of worried about mighty warriors. They can be unsafe sometimes, but not this one. This, this warrior is not un, un, unsafe. He will take great delight in us. He's not there to, to power himself over us, but he will delight in us and rejoice over us with singing. I mean, take that in. 
The fact that the God of the universe rejoices over you and has a song written just about you that he sings over you. Have you heard that song lately? Have you heard that melody lately in your life, in your experiences? The Bible is full of this kind of stuff. Isaiah 49, 15, to switch the metaphor, can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, because humans are fragile, I will not forget you. You're more to me like a baby at a mother's breast. Isaiah goes on, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This is an interesting interesting, uh, quote for those who have friends who are practitioners of Islam. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but if you look down at your palm, you have a couple shapes. You have a a V-shape and an I-shape. And then on this palm, you have an I-shape and a V-shape. And uh, in in many Islamic cultures and societies, that that adds up to the number 99, which is that the, the 99 names of God are written on your hand. God's engraved himself on you so you know he's the creator. Christianity sees it differently. It's not that, that God has marked you. It's not that God has branded you. You, your name is on his hands. He's chosen to put your name on his hands. That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. He says, your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back and those who laid you waste depart from you. And this is a great promise. This is a great promise here. and It's a tender one. Uh, in a society where there's war and strife and your children can be taken as slaves and killed at, at, at whim. And God says, this is, a, this is an eschatological, an end times kind of promise. I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children will hasten back to you. I've freed them. Uh, those who laid waste to you will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. For anyone whose heart is broken, by their children, the promise is, is they will come back to you. As surely as I live, says declares the Lord. Listen to this imagery. You will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. Listen to that imagery. Isn't that profound? All of our losses, especially for parents, uh, will be repaid. And our children will be around us like ornaments. Uh, that's the kind of heart God has for us. Uh, and then I love this last word, like a bride, because then this just opens up the whole biblical um, theme of us being God's bride. And if we want to ask what our identity is at its core, it's bride. We are a bride of Jesus. Jesus talks himself about himself as the, the, the bridegroom. John the Baptist recognized Jesus as the bridegroom. Paul speaks of the church and Jesus being married. And the last book, Revelation in the Bible, has a picture of a marriage with a bride, the church being ready, made ready for her husband, Jesus. That's our main identity. We are a bride. What does it feel like to be a beloved bride? Have you been treasured lately? Guys, guys don't know this experientially, do we? Uh, uh, makes, makes some work for us in our imaginations to, to, to move from someone who, uh, someone who needs to domineer and provide to someone who can receive. All of us at our very identities are receivers of love. And this is where the old words from Solomon, the, the, uh, the, Jesus' ancestor, King Solomon, 
writes in Song of Songs, this is where the church has learned to, to read this book as a love poem from Jesus to us. My dove, that's us, in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Let's catch the little foxes that eat our grapes while they're in bloom. Let me touch you, says God. Don't hide from me. Don't hide in the rocks, in the crags. I want to see you because you're lovely to me. I want to hear your voice because your voice is beautiful to me, is sweet. Let's, let's figure out all the things that prevent us from falling in love again. Let's catch the little foxes that eat our grapes. Um, but we can hide, right? We can hide from God. We think he's after us sometimes. But this is a gorgeous way of explaining uh, God's heart for us. Uh, so here's the, the list of three. This is really a, 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 a blueprint for me as I go forward in these couple sermons on receiving God's love. Because you ask the question, what, well, what is that like? How do you really do it? How do you get it from your head to your heart? How do you get it into your practices, learning to receive this kind of love day in and day out? And really, you have to first understand the extent of God's love, which I'm trying to illustrate to you today. You have to understand just how deep and wide and far is the love of God for you. If you don't understand that, you'll never want to open up because you know other forms of lesser love, don't you? But you have to first understand the extent of God's love. But then you have to understand the nature of his personality. Is he good? What's he after? And we'll get to that next week. That's going to be next week's sermon. And then finally, learning to be vulnerable to him and practicing vulnerability. This is letting God touch you. That's in two weeks' time. I'll get to that sermon. But this is really the template. If, you're, if you ever sort of are scratching your head, going, I forget. How do I let God love me? How do I experience the love of God? It's these three steps. And they're not easy. Um, but they're, they're there and they're straightforward and we can make them with courage. Um, but there are obstacles. And I think that's where I want to head for the rest of the day today is to think a little bit about the obstacles that stand in our way. Um, so John goes on. This is John chapter 1 again. He's continuing on. Uh, Nothing was made, remember, in the last verse that was not through him. Now he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. So the book of John is now talking about John the Baptist, in case you get confused. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And we have to ask ourselves, if the love of God in the Old Testament is seen as a, as a beloved uh, as a lover, loving their beloved, why do we need a forerunner? Why do you need someone to come and testify? Shouldn't that love be self-evident? But it's the main truth here that I'm going to try to hammer in this next couple of weeks. We have to prepare ourselves. The, the love of God that we understand is so foreign to us, or that so foreign to us that we struggle understanding it. All of human history has struggled to understand it, and we need to prepare ourselves for it. And John was the great preparation for Jesus. Uh, John will go, the book of John will go on to say in chapter 1, Jesus came to his own, the word came to his own that was to the Israelites, to the, the Jewish people of the first century, but his own did not receive him. It's very difficult to receive the love of God, and we have to prepare ourselves. 
And we need, we need something like a John the Baptist kind of preparation. You might say, I'm a Christian. I've been doing this thing, but God seems far away, like unimaginably distant in my life. You might think, life is busy. I have my doubts. I have other relationships to tend to. Your heart may feel warm or cold, or maybe it was never warm to begin with. Um, one person put it this way, maybe you've warmed yourself by the fires of God, but have never let yourself be consumed by them. Maybe God is all too familiar. He's lost his power. We have this form of religion of, of coming to church and doing church and serving, and, but maybe we have lost the power of, of this faith. And we know something is wrong because nothing else that we turn to, nothing else that we try to fill up with, fills us. And... Um, and satisfies us. I remember this quote from C.S. Lewis. He once said, if you find yourself with a desire that nothing in this world can fulfill, then maybe we were created for another world. So this light, this light of the world came into the world 2,000 years ago. It's the source of our light. Um, but we need to be prepared. And I see four obstacles to preparing ourselves. Experiences of isolation, power of fake intimacy in our coupling culture around us, the rules and regulations kind of approach to faith and unrepented for sins. Like these are kind of things that will, I think, prevent us from even understanding the love of God that he has for us. And so just to dive into this a little bit, our experience of isolation. I asked before how many people have ever felt treasured, uh, but there are so many people, maybe, maybe some in this room, who it's been a long time since anyone's even given you a hug who've touched you, by, felt the warmth of another human embrace. Um, but we grow up and our rejections, our insecurities, and the experiences we have in isolation from community can begin working on us and trying to convince us that uh, we're not worthy, we're not loved, we're not, um, there isn't anything that can touch out there. I, when I, this Enjoying God book was, one of the parts was talking about how he learned to crawl up in his Abba's lap like a little child, and be snuggled. And I'm like, I cannot relate. <laughs> I don't know what that is, what that feels like. Like, uh, my parents did a good job. My, my, dad did, my dad did a good job raising me, but uh, it wasn't an, an affectionate kind of experience. I have nothing, I have no experiential, um, at least in my, my memory as I hold it, I have, no ex I have some sort of faint memories of being rocked by my grandmother. But I've, I've got nothing in my deep core memory system like crawling up into an Abba's lap, a father's lap, and being treasured and rocked. And in fact, because of that, when someone says, that's what the love and loving God is like, I'm like, I've, I'm sorry, that doesn't compute. And in fact, I almost don't want that because I don't even know that I need it. <laughs> and it feel, I feel weak and I feel icky that I would need that kind of affection for me, to be, for me to be thriving as a human being. I can do this on my own. I don't need an Abba rocking me on his lap. Uh, but that's, that's my set of issues. Um, and sometimes I even begin to despise that kind of touch. So learning to embrace the love of God uh, because of isolation in our own experiences can be a real obstacle. Learning to receive and turn our hearts to God now, the second piece is the power of fake intimacy in our coupling culture. And I, I think for the next couple of months, I'm going to riff on this one because it's so powerful. Like, 
um, intimacy. God created intimacy. Uh, God created uh, um, people to uh, connect up in intimate relationships. I'm not saying that romantic relationships are bad, but our culture has taken romantic, rom- the romantic feelings and the romantic experiences that we're meant to have probably mostly at the beginning of our relationships. <laughs> the infatuation, chemicals firing stage, that thing, our culture has taken it and ramped that up to 200 and said, that's what love is. It's a coupling kind of culture. And if you don't believe me, just go grocery shopping and look what, look, what, do you, what is your eyes fix on as you check out in the grocery aisles? tabloids. It's all about coupling and breaking of coupling. It's everywhere around us. Think of the Disney movies you grew up with. Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Snow White. What's the main storyline? Princes and princesses getting together. That's the point of it all. Or TV shows like our favorite shows like The Office. It's all the whole thing. The whole office phenomenon in in North America was built upon Jim and Pam. And they're, and they're finding, them, finding one another. Or just look at the movies, Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, it all, it's all telling us that our identity should be in coupling and uh, turns our eyes completely and obsessively sometimes away from God. Now here's, again, romance isn't bad. It's placed in us. Uh, but romance doesn't begin to fill that empty, aching, yawning hole in us. And the more we obsess on filling that with romance, I think the emptier we, we get. Now, I'm interested in this. I, I, I've been researching this a little bit. I want to, to Google this a little more because uh, it's so strong. I, like I'm a researcher by trade. I've been trained to be a researcher. And I've, I've tried to penetrate the, the research on this. Like, How do you get into the research on the damages of coupling culture? And our culture isn't even aware that there are damages to it. Like, like the, the, the best way you can get into it, into this conversation, is through this little conversation on um, the, the, the damage that can be done by believing that coupling uh, is, is, is our, best, um, our best future. So uh, I guess what, what, what that research is showing is that for the messages that come to us over and over again are, one, if I'm not coupled... If I don't have an intimate partner, there must be something wrong with me, which is a lie from the pits of hell. And two, if I do have an intimate partner and we're no longer in that first infatuation romance stage, then something's wrong with us, which is a lie from the pits of hell. And yet it is the culture that we're absorbed in. It's privileging partnership over other types of relationships and we have to, our church has bought into this hook, line, and sinker, if you don't know. I mean, that's just, we, we, we don't challenge it. So I'm still trying to figure this out and figure out how to get us out of it. Um, but it's very difficult because everything in our culture wants us to follow and believe that, that this kind of romanticism is where life is found. And what I think the, the, the most damaging part of that is, is that where our life is found is in receiving the love of God and learning to give it. That's, where our, that's what fills that hole. And yet we're so obsessed that it takes our attention fully into coupling and out of learning to receive God's love. So 
power of fake intimacy in our coupling culture. Another obstacle to receiving God, even knowing God's love, is a rules and regulations kind of approach to faith. And by this one, I mean we can, we can tend to think that because our own culture, our own family systems wanted us to obey and behave, that's what God is like. And so we think, well, how do we then respond to God? I follow a rule, and he likes me. I'm successful, and he's happy with me. I break a rule, and he's angry at me. I'm unsuccessful, and so something must be wrong with me. That's not the framework. That, I mean, just search the scriptures. That's not the framework we're given. So if, if that describes your kind of response to God, I'm telling you today, there's something else much better than that. And the final piece is unrepented for sin. Um, this is just the reality that so many of us have been involved with so much in our life and we've screwed things up so bad or we've done things that are way out of bounds that, and we know it. Um, but we think that to admit it, to have to admit this means um, that our lives are going to be sort of, um, they just fall, fall apart. Like we, we build our narratives around not having to admit things that we've done wrong. And this is you, if this is something, you know, if, if you fall into this category, this will block your ability to receive the love of God because he's wanting to come in with the type of love that says, no matter what's there, I adore you, I treasure you, and I will, I will redeem this thing. But, um, but if we have our defenses up, like, I will, I will admit everything except for this one thing, which, gosh, maybe was right, maybe was wrong, I don't know, but it's a thing. It's, if you can locate that kind of thing... Um, you may just need to get that out to someone or in some, some uh, situation. Um, and that may be blocking your ability to receive the love of God. There we go. So here, here's again. We'll, we'll open this up a little more in the coming weeks. But what can I do this afternoon? What could you do and go home today to, to receive the love of God? And again, this is around the first point. We have to get our minds around just how much God loves us. What can I do to realize the depths of God's love? Study scripture. Studying scripture isn't just another checkmark thing. Studying scripture is, is actually getting to the heart of God. We can, we can make God into so many things. We can forget who he is. We can turn him into our own images. We can think that he's like someone that we've experienced. He's nothing like anything we've experienced. And we need the scriptures which open up the heart of God to remind us just how much he loves us. So if you could do one thing this afternoon to, to remind yourself of God's love, go home and study John 1. It's a great, great place. This is where, what we're, I'm preaching on for the next couple of weeks. Go home and study John 1. Or journaling. Try this journal exercise. This is the first, first little piece of anti-coupling culture that I've discovered, and I want to offer it to us. I haven't practiced it much because I've just found it out, but I think it's going to be powerful. Uh, what do I long for, even obsessed for, from a romantic partner? Can God somehow fulfill that for me? If you find yourself, no matter if, if you're married or single or whatever situation you're in, if you find yourself having your mind going over an ideal partner or someone who's going to complete me, can you locate what that, you're hoping to get from that person? Can you give that words? And, and just imagine, can maybe I receive affirmation, encouragement, safety, um, whatever it is that you want to get from, can you imagine receiving that from God? I think, that, I think that just even that little practice might help us get out of the, the, the gas chamber of couple and culture. Another thing, prepare for Christmas Day. I'm going to encourage us to think about this the next couple of weeks. December 25th is our holy day. 
the day in which uh, we're supposed to open our hearts wide by giving gifts to one another to receive the love of God. It's our holy day. And can we imagine the 25th being something of an experience that reinforces that? So much of the experience is wake up, you have your food, have some family time, your gifts, and the technology and the games go on. Can we imagine another way to experience the 25th? If, if you want to, if you want to open up a holy space, like a taking walks or being with your family in a way or do, studying some scripture, it's going to take some preparation, not just going to happen. So I'll talk about that a little bit next week about more preparations. But begin now preparing for that day, and uh, I think you'll, you'll amp up your experience of receiving the love of God on Christmas more. Another, another idea, journaling about the, the repentance stuff. What is the one thing that I feel remorse for? Is it real or false? And can I narrate it in a journal? I'm inviting you, if you think that there is something that you feel like you did wrong and that you can't admit, and that it may be blocking the love of God in your life, I'm not asking you yet to go and to tell that to another human being. Because sometimes the, the stuff that's in this space feels to us like maybe it was wrong, maybe it wasn't. I don't know, it's gray. And, and we try to justify it. But I'm asking, maybe, maybe we can like, scratch away at that a little bit by just trying to journal about it. Is this, is this something that you actually feel real remorse over? And is this something you need to give up to God in repentance? And then come back next week for installment two. More on receiving the love of God. So I'm not sure, friends, where this is taking you today. Uh, if, if, you're, if this is challenging you or encouraging you or if you've got your fists up emotionally, that's okay, whatever response is fine. Um, uh, but God is here and has been speaking to you. And I invite you to take the next couple songs and uh, the communion time where we come up, we take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice as a reminder that Jesus' love for us goes way beyond anything we can imagine. He gave his whole life up for us. Um, we, we do this practice to try to, to remember over and over again just how much he loves and cares for us. Whatever it is, I invite you to take these next couple songs to respond, say some prayers to God, do some singing in your heart to, to, to maybe ask God, I, I am a stone fortress, break through it. I don't know, I can't, I can't open the door. Maybe that's your prayer. Or maybe you're ready and say, God, just come ravish me. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, maybe you have someone to pray for today. Whatever it is, I invite you forward um, for the next couple songs and then we'll send us forth. Uh, so the table is set here and everyone here is welcome.